Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, this morning, we're turning our attention again to the Scriptures. And we believe that the Scriptures are the lifeblood of the church in that we recognize that God has, through the death of Jesus Christ, brought us into life, has poured out his spirit on us, but as a help to us, he has spoken his word to us. And the words of scripture, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, are God-breathed. That means they are the very words of God that give us direction, they give us correction, they give us training, training in righteousness, so that we might know how to walk and how to live in light of the revelation of God. So this means we find purpose and we find meaning through walking with God through his revealed truth. And so we turn our attention to studying God's word in everything we do, even in our worship services. And so this is a time where we give in attention to the scriptures. And so I'd invite you, we're in the midst of a study of 1 Peter. I'd invite you to find 1 Peter at the end of the New Testament. Look for chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 7 through 11. But just before we read those verses, I'd like us to uh, bow for a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach your word, as we look into your word and look for your direction, instruction for us, we pray that you will teach us, that you will open our minds, our eyes to your truth, that our hearts will be open to hear your word to us. And be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to look this section uh, of Peter... We uh, noticed last week that Peter was addressing the whole issue of suffering and the conflict that one might uh, encounter in the culture in which we live. And now he is going to give instruction to us as Christians, as believers. And I've entitled the sermon, Vital Signs for the Church. He's going to give us vital signs. But before I look at that, I'd like to jump back a little bit. Uh, there have been a lot of very troubling things in the news lately, and one of those stories is about Jeffrey Epstein, whom we've heard a lot about, uh, the billionaire investment guy who was in a high-security prison because of crimes against uh, humanity, against younger women, and all of the connections he had and all the relationships he had and then he killed himself in prison, which is unusual. That doesn't happen a lot. And there's a lot of questions about why this happened. It seems to most people to be a, a, a travesty of justice for sure because he was headed to uh, a court of law. But when this happened, I was struck by the fact that the editorial board of the New York Times claim that Epstein had escaped justice. 
They said that he committed suicide and this avoided a lengthy trial which would have landed him in jail for the rest of his life. Even though Jeffrey Epstein is dead, his victims still deserve justice, but it appears that he has escaped justice. Now that's quite a mouthful, especially from a Christian worldview. Now if it's a materialistic worldview, that all we have is what we feel, hear, taste, and see, and that we're like animals, we die, we go into the grave, and that's the end of it, then you can truly say that in some sense Mr. Epstein escaped justice. But when we come to the scriptures, which are to inform us and teach us about what is really true, what reality is, the story and message of a God who created us, who made us as his people, and that we have gone our own way. We have taken the path of rebellion and sin and have chosen our own way. But God has continued to reach out to us and to restore and open the door of forgiveness and hope through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. We also must know that part of that work of God on our behalf will result in an ultimate accounting of our life before God. An ultimate accounting of what he has given us as gifts and privileges of life and that we will have to give an account before him. It says this in verse 5 of chapter 4 which we looked at last week, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So because we die, we don't escape justice. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 9 says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So it is true that Jeffrey Epstein will have to give an accounting for his life. Not on this earth, not according to the legal system that God has divinely and graciously given to the world, but that legal system is not ultimate. The legal system that is ultimate is the judgment before God that we will give an accounting before him after our death. It's sad that Mr. Epstein thought he was escaping justice only to find himself in an even more ominous and powerful court. As we turn to our text, and this, this kind of is, feeds into what Peter is encouraging the church in the first century to think about. As Peter is writing to the Christians and they're experiencing sufferings and persecutions and challenges to their faith, he wants them to realize that, as he talks about last week, that even when we are suffering, when doing good, God is not unaware and that for those who are seeking to do harm, there will be an accounting given. And even if we experience harm that ends up in our death, God is the ultimate judge that we have to do with. And so as he comes to this next section, verses 7 through 11, Peter is seeking to encourage the church with these 
ultimate truths so that we see life in light of the fact that God is sovereign, he is the ruler, he is the king, and that we ultimately give an accounting before him. And therefore, we must live our lives in light of that day. And so we'll see in our text that Peter begins speaking to the church about the end of all things. Let's read verses 7 through 11 together. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober and and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. As we look at this passage, it is kind of a passage where Peter gives us kind of rapid-fire exhortations as to how to live, what we should be devoting our time to. And he gives us four specific exhortations as to how we should live. But he also tells us that how we should live should be lined up with the fact that the end of all things is near. The first part of verse 7. So the first exhortation we encounter is be alert and sober-minded so that we may pray or sober in our prayers. But I'd like to tackle that first little phrase, the end of all things. It's interesting that Peter here says, know that the end of all things is near. And for many commentators and people who read the scripture and seek to interpret it, Many have made the suggestion that Peter was actually wrong here. That Peter expected the Lord to return in a very short time. Peter's writing this book probably 30, 35 years after the death of Christ. And he knows that Jesus' death and resurrection is the linchpin that establishes the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and is coming back to this world to set up his kingdom. But he did not know or expect that it would be a long period of time. I don't follow that explanation. Peter wasn't mistaken. I think it's how we read it that is important. Another way to read it is the end of all things is near. Some have said, and this is true, that the end is near. It can come about at any moment. Whenever God decides to send his son back to establish his kingdom, none of the prophecies, none of the promises would hinder an immediate inbreaking of the kingdom of Christ. And so the end is near. It was near for Peter. It was near. It is near for us. Now this is kind of helping us understand when we think about an event in history, oftentimes we think of where we are in history and 
the many years that transpire from one end to the other, and therefore a point or a moment in history is a long ways away. And that's one way we could look at it, but the truth is that the Scripture speaks about the age in which we live as being the days, the last days. And that any moment, at any time, the breaking of the kingdom of Christ can enter our world. And therefore, we are on the precipice at any moment, in any time. The best way for me to understand this is that when uh, about a year ago, we took our, a couple of years ago, we took our youngest, uh, our middle son to Hume Christian Camp, which is a camp in California. And it's in the Sequoia National Forest, and it's 7,000 feet up. And uh, we didn't know much about the camp. We never really seen it except pictures on the Internet. And kind of signed them up and went driving out there. And we drove out there, and all of a sudden we realized that this camp is 7,000 feet up, and you have to drive up this mountain. And it takes about an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes to drive up the mountain, and almost the whole way, you're driving on this road that's on the side of the mountain and you can see the, the cliff below. And so I'm driving for an hour and, and when you realize the cliff below, you certainly give attention to the road and just staying on the road and paying attention to the signs and the curves coming up so that you're prepared not to go off the road. Well, in a very similar way, this being the last days, it is true that Jesus' kingdom can break into our lives and into our day at any moment. It is like we're traveling down the timeline of history with our lives and with our directions, but the kingdom of God is at the door. And we need to notice the signs. We need to know that there are events happening around us and that at any moment, at any time, that kingdom can step into our lives and that we need to travel down the road aware that the kingdom of God is near. And therefore, live with such an attitude and an attention to what God's kingdom is about, what he is doing in our lives, what his plans and purposes are for us as a church so that we are living in light of that reality. So Peter writes these words, these exhortations as a encouragement, as a, a, a reminder to us to live our lives with the right kind of direction, the right kind of intention. And he starts it off saying, the end of all things is near. This governs all of these exhortations. Now, there are four exhortations that he gives us in this short paragraph. It's a wonderful paragraph for us to come back to and remind ourselves of. And the first one is to be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Really, for the sake of your prayers might be a better translation because pray is actually plural. And so Peter is talking about what kind of mind, what kind of attention should we have? We should be alert. And alert here certainly speaks about having, uh, being uh, focused. It's about being uh, safe. Uh, the Greek idea is the mind that is kept safe. But the person 
that has a characteristic of wisdom in their thinking is seeing what is proper in proportion to everything else. We are able to make judgments about the things that we encounter in our life in light of eternity. And to be alert, that means to have your eyes open to anticipate what God is doing in the midst of our lives at the moment. So don't live as if it's just some far-off future and that God's not presently involved in your life. He is presently involved in your life and he is up to things and we need to have our eyes and ears open. We need to be alert. And then that needs to lead us to prayer. Also, we're told to be sober. Sober-minded. Sober-minded means sensible. Means to be serious. It doesn't mean that we're a killjoy and we don't have fun and we don't enjoy the blessings that God gives us. It's not that, but we are not to be frivolous and irresponsible. We're to be sober minded. That means to evaluate everything in light of the kingdom of God is near. I love the, uh, the resolution of Jonathan Edwards when he was. 21 years old, he made, uh, you can look him up online, 32 resolutions about his life. He was kind of intense. Uh, 32 resolutions about his life and how he was going to live his life. And one of those that I remember so well is that he would never do anything that would cause himself or his Lord shame at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That means he is living every moment of every day in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is near. And that is Peter's encouragement to this first century church. It's Peter's encouragement to you and I. We must live that way. And this mindset should lead us to the prayer closet. This mindset of being alert and sober-minded must mean that we will take all of the events and situations in our life before the Lord with earnestness and faith. And so our private prayer lives should be bolstered and we should hear this exhortation for ourselves but also recognize that this paragraph is not just spoken to individuals. This paragraph is to the church. And so if we are, as a church, alert and sober-minded, it would lead to corporate prayer, an intense increase of corporate prayer. And oh, I feel that we need that. Prayers are plural because it's prayers in abundance. It's prayers for one another. It's prayers for us together. Therefore, prayer should increase across the board in our private lives and in our corporate lives. And this will help us to live ready for the end being near. So exhortation number one is to live soberly and to pray. Exhortation number two is, uh, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins, verse 8. Here again, there is another exhortation in light of the fact that the end is near. How are we to be on task? What are we charged with? And Peter says, above all, love each other deeply. 
when I think of this, it's talking about the magnification and the supreme characteristic of love, the need for that kind of love and that love to be deep love, which really speaks to the idea of love to the full measure, love completely. The original word can also come from the word zealously. Be devoted, give yourself, expend your energy, set your focus on that kind of love. It means to be outstretched in love in a sense of constant and consistent, never failing kind of love that you will determine to express to one another. One commentator, Cranfield, says it pictures the effort of a horse that is seen at full gallop and speaks of every muscle taut as it strenuously and sustained effort, it runs the course as a horse runs around the, the, the racetrack with all of its might and with all of its energy. Above all, love one another deeply. As I think about this, I often think, pull out regularly, Paul's passage about love in 1 Corinthians 13. We're probably all very familiar with it, but we need to pull it out regularly. And I love the passage because it speaks so profoundly to me. Because as you read it, you realize that all of the words are verbs. They're not emotional words. They're not feeling words. They're verbs. And as I read through it, I have to look at my life and my attitudes and my actions. And I have to say, am I acting in this way? It's not do I feel this way. I do believe that we will experience the love for one another as we surrender to God and ask him to pour his love into our hearts. But the first step is to check how we're acting. Are we surrendered to God? Are we asking God to manifest his love in us? And one of the best tests for my life is to pull out 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 and read the words. Just listen to them. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Does not dishonor others. Is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Wow, what a picture of love. Oh, that we would love one another. Above all things, love one another deeply, according to that description. Peter goes on in his exhortation when he's talking about this practice of love, and he doesn't leave us wondering what the, the ramifications or implications will be. He tells us in the text, because love covers over a multitude of sins. We have to say that love is gracious, Love wants forgiveness. Love wants restoration, wants to believe the best about another. But we must quickly say it doesn't mean that love sweeps sin under the rug. It doesn't mean that love avoids difficult confrontation. It doesn't mean love can forget the responsibilities of discipline. 
All of these things would undercut love. Real love presses us into a real relationship where real faults and sins are recognized, where real love and blessings are celebrated. It pushes into a deep relationship. This is what Peter is longing for. When we practice love, it does mean that love is ready and willing to forgive and to forgive again and again as our Lord Jesus teaches us in His teaching. You think of the Matthew eighteen twenty two. It also means love will find a way to remain silent even when someone is ferociously criticizing you. Love will hold back. Love will be careful. Love will think about the other as much as they'll think about themselves. And it means a commitment to walk in relationship with fellow believers as Jesus walks in relationship with us. We don't have the capacity to love as we should love. We'll only find the capacity to love as we can and should love and as we'll be empowered to love as we recognize the depth of God's love for us in Christ and who He's made us to be. And then it's natural. It's expected. Peter thinks deeply love one another out of the love that God has poured into our hearts. So let the love of God flow between us as God's people in the church. This will give us strength against the challenges of our culture and of our time. Against unbelief, we will find strength in community relationship together so the exhortation to to prayer the exhortation to love deeply and then it's followed by the third exhortation to practice hospitality in verse 9 verse 9 it says offer hospitality to one another without grumbling very short verse interesting that we're tempted to grumble but Peter says, offer hospitality. In the first century, it was even more important than it is now, though that might be not what I want to say. It's, let's say, hospitality was in a different context, but not necessarily more important. It is a different context because in the first century, there were no hotels and motels. You didn't have traveling pastors and, and leaders of the church who were going and bringing the, the letters of Paul and letters of Peter to other churches, going to the hotel in the town. And, you know, the, what you did in the first century is you went to the city square in a first century town and you kind of hung out there and you met some people and you hoped for the prospect of meeting somebody who would invite you to their house so that you could sleep for the night. That's hospitality. And the church was to be known in the city square, and the church would know who these traveling speakers and ministers were and Christians were from other churches, and they would open their home and invite them in. Now, we don't have that context in our present day because we have hotels and motels but it is not the case that hospitality is therefore not needed what happens for us is in the first century the church was very much seen as the people and they cared for one another and they showed hospitality to one another 
in our day, we think of the church as the building. So you're going to find a church in the city of Columbia. You look, where's the church building? That's not the way it was primarily thought of in the first century. It was primarily thought to be the church is the people. And I think we would be helped a great deal if we would move back to a better understanding of what the church is. The church is not the building. The church is the people. And one of the vital spiritual characteristics of the people of God, even in our day, is to be hospitable. One of the best ways we can share spiritual life and encourage growth and maturity and love and concern for one another is to be hospitable. This was a value of the first century and the growth of the New Testament church that needs to be recaptured and re-sought after by us as Christians because hospitality is a way of expressing our love for one another. And I think we can increase greatly in this. And I would even go so far as to say I'd encourage everyone here to once or twice a month just plan and make intention to invite somebody over to your house from within the church. And then I would even go a step further after we get used to that. Of course, you know, the warning is without grumbling. Uh, So being hospitable is difficult at times. But let's go for it with gusto. Let's, let's step into this realizing the spiritual value of hospitality as we think about starting small groups, which we'll be starting here in September. We think we're looking for people who are hospitable, who will host in their homes week after week a small group. This is a great spiritual discipline. I would love to see hospitality be seen so evidently and practiced so widely in our church that nobody ever goes home without going to someone's house in any given month. And then I would like to see it spill over. We can be hospitable to our neighbors, to people we know at work. All we're really doing is being able to open up our lives, share our lives with people, and then hear their stories and to show them love. Peter knew how important and how powerful this dynamic was that he says offer hospitality as an exhortation for the times of challenge, for the days in which we live, as we anticipate the breaking in of the kingdom of Christ. Be the people who are hospitable. So that's third, hospitality. Number four is in verse 10 and 11. Use your gifts for the benefit of the church. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in, his ver- in its various forms. What, I'm, what we read in that verse alone is that God has given gifts by his spirit by his grace to everyone who believes in jesus and the expectation really the opportunity is for us to serve one another to use those gifts whether you go out and sign up for children's ministries whether you sign up to be a part of a small group and serve in that way There are gifts that God has given you and the church is to be made alive with the participation and involvement of everyone in the church using these gracious gifts that God has given us. 
And I love the fact that this is in conjunction with lists of gifts that Paul has given us in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. And in some sense, I agree that Peter here is probably kind of banking on those lists. He doesn't spend a lot of time. He just recognizes that those have been taught in the churches And people know of the gifts that God has poured out. And therefore, the encouragement, the exhortation here is get involved. Use your gifts. And I love the fact that he says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides. What's the common denominator? on God's strength and God's guidance. It's God's words. It's God at work in the people of the church and it's not that there is some hierarchy of greatness and meagerness but it is the fact that every single one has been gifted by God by the Spirit to contribute to the life of the church and therefore we should be fully participating as believers together. And this brings me to the close In verse 11, the second part, it says, and it's kind of a continuation of the sentence, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. The high point here is the conclusion, the purpose, is so that God may be praised in and through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, commentators always say, well, you know, that was kind of the end of the story here. I think Peter closed his book and therefore we have another chapter and a half and probably he closed the letter and and, and so we have another letter that's added on here. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think Peter does exactly what Paul does in other passages, especially uh, Romans 11.36, when he is talking about the work of God in the life of the church and how it can be strengthened and how it can be on the road to preparedness for when Christ comes again. And as Peter sees that and, and takes a picture of that and is captivated by that picture, he breaks into doxology and praise because God is up to something in the lives of his people. And he's inviting everyone to live in light of that truth. To enter into what God is doing. And it causes celebration and joy in Peter's heart. As it should cause celebration and joy in our heart. Because God is worthy of glory and power forever and ever. Oh, may we live for his glory. And we do that. By following these exhortations. Let's pray together. God, you are gracious to us. You are glorious. You are the one who reigns supreme over all. Your kingdom is near. Your reign is real in our lives. And one day you're breaking into this world. And your kingdom will be established forever and ever. And we who trust in the Lord Jesus will be part of that kingdom. But now in these days you have made that offer of grace and forgiveness and salvation. Free and available to all who will believe. And we who trust in you, we need to hear these words 
so that we might live in a way that reflects the glory of your kingdom and your truth and of who you are. We thank you for your word today. Build it, push it into our hearts and lives that we might live in light of your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.